I'm Audrey Gelman, the co-founder and CEO of The Wing. You can probably tell that I am absolutely obsessed with the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I love that Midge is taking her show on the road and outside New York City, just like we're doing with our future Wing locations. Great minds think alike. Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to the final episode of the first season of No Man's Land. <laughs> Where to begin? Fanny Fern was a revolutionary. Deborah Brannigan, author of Shame the Devil, is talking about a columnist and author who was wildly popular from the 1850s to the 1870s, and personally significant to me, because Fanny Fern was my gateway clubwoman, and the story you're about to hear was the very one that hooked me. In her era, which was the era of Walt Whitman and Nathaniel Hawthorne, she was the highest paid, most popular writer. In 1855, Fanny Fern was making the modern equivalent of $3,000 a week writing about women's rights, children's rights, and prison reform. A compilation of her New York Ledger columns sold 70,000 copies in its first year. Even Nathaniel Hawthorne, who famously condemned the, quote, damn mob of scribbling women, praised Fern as the exception. He wrote, The woman writes as if the devil was in her, and that is the only condition in which a woman ever writes anything worth reading. I like to consider her like the Oprah of the 19th century. They wanted to know, what did Fanny Fern think about this issue or that issue? Or did you hear what Fanny Fern said about this or that? So, of course, when the New York Press Club hosted a dinner for Charles Dickens in 1867, Fern was invited. But she wasn't a fan of Dickens. He was so cruel to his wife and took a mistress, basically in front of his wife's nose, and even traveled with the mistress. And on the other hand, her husband, James Parton, adored Charles Dickens. And Fern adored her husband. So they went. If nothing else, the guest list was really good. Louisa May Alcott, the author of Little Women, was going to be there. And then it was um, made known to the group that Charles Dickens said that only men could come into the dinner and, and dine with him. And so even people who had tickets, if they were a woman, they weren't allowed in. Women were given a few options. They could listen from the kitchen with the servants. They could order a cold supper and eat quietly on the balcony. Or they could leave. And they were told that Charles Dickens didn't want women there because he thought that it would impinge on the freedom of the men to smoke and drink and swear and talk freely because they would have to be proper if there were women around. You'd think that this would be an anomaly for a person as famous and successful as Fern. But people had an easier time reading her on the page than seeing her as a real woman out and about in the world. It was sort of scandalous. She was married. She had children. What on earth was she doing running around in the public and not staying home and baking chicken pies? You know, why, why was she not attending to her womanly duties? And what kind of a woman was she? Morally, was she a woman? Ethically, was she a woman? Or was she some kind of deviant and so there was a fear of a professional woman, even though there was an awe of professional women at the same time. They were always dependent on men. So a progressive male editor could give them a seat at the table, 
but then a jerk like Charles Dickens could just as easily take it away. The New York Press Club, as they learned that night, was just another boys' club. And so a month later, Fern and 11 other women writers started their own. Cirrhosis, one of the first women's clubs in America. And so I imagine there would have been a great freedom and a great relief to feel like you weren't the only person doing this. And there would be an acceptance and a, and a sisterhood of knowing that there were other people and they were facing the same you know, social prejudices you were and the same professional challenges. But they weren't all talk. Cirrhosis and the thousands of women's clubs that followed fought for suffrage and educational opportunities. They established public libraries and welfare institutions and demanded equal rights and full citizenship, all of which absolutely terrified men. In the 1905 Ladies' Home Journal, one of the most popular magazines at the time, President Grover Cleveland wrote, the best and safest club for a woman to patronize is her home. Being surrounded by women is a very validating and powerful experience. The Nisei social clubs and the girls' clubs, young women's clubs, were indeed political. Sort of overnight, there was this shift. and Our members were like, what I really want to do is get on a bus and march. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who were too bad for your textbooks. I'm your host, Alexis Coe the in-house historian at The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Every week, I introduce you to women who broke the rules, who history forgot about, ignored, or got totally wrong. My mind was totally blown um, sitting down and having breakfast with you. And really the thing that you said was, you know, this idea you have, this thing you're creating, it actually existed. That's Audrey Gelman, CEO of The Wing, describing our first meeting a year before the launch. And I didn't really know what would come of our breakfast. As a historian, I consulted on movies and television, but not businesses. So I figured I'd tell Audrey and Lauren Casson, her co-founder, about the great Fanny Fern and see how they reacted, how they used the information. You know, at that point, it really shifted from thinking like, okay, we have this like innovative idea. It's going to, you know, give women a place where they can do lots of different things at once. And it's sort of multi-purpose to realizing like what we were doing was resurrecting this concept that had been so powerful, but so forgotten by history and resurrecting it for modern women. And so I come to you in the final episode of the first season of No Man's Land, a few years after that breakfast, with an agenda, a celebration of forgotten history in which collective action by diverse women has been dismissed as frivolous, their interests as minor, their contributions as immaterial, when in reality, of course, they've been anything but. And I'm not just talking about white professional women in New York. We're going to head west in the years leading up to World War II and then in the throes of it, when there was a lot more at stake than a dinner with a misogynist. The Japanese are easy to know. They are as different from ourselves as any people on this planet. This was a time period when their parents could not become naturalized citizens. They could not vote. 
UCLA professor Valerie Matsumoto, author of City Girls, is describing a time in which young Japanese Americans in Los Angeles, California, relied on social clubs to help them navigate a country that was extremely hostile towards them. They were barred from certain restaurants, movie theaters, and swimming pools. And things weren't much better at school. They were excluded from mainstream clubs and activities, so they formed their own. I love the variety of their names, from the TMTM Girl Reserves Clubs, which stood for the more the merrier, and the SOF Girl Reserves, which was service opportunity and friendship, to the Queen Esters, I think in Hollywood, who, um, who were clearly a group that was sponsored by a church. There was freedom in the groups. They played sports, they planned outings to the beach, but mostly they were service-oriented. They volunteered and raised funds and showed America what good citizens Japanese American girls could be. I would say that maybe we should rethink our definition of what is the political. If we think about politics, including claiming your American identity and being able to claim public space, then one could argue that the Nisei social clubs and the girls clubs, young women's clubs, were indeed doing something political. Within their own culture, it was considered modern and progressive. These are second-generation youth who have very strict immigrant parents who have very particular ideas about correct behavior for proper young women. So girls were under particular surveillance and control. And not just at home. After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, America officially entered World War II, sending troops abroad. And back home... Japanese Americans, many of whom had been born in the United States, residents or citizens for generations, were made to pay for Pearl Harbor because they looked like the enemy. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. On February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 which allowed the government to forcibly remove nearly 130,000 Japanese Americans from their West Coast homes. Notices were posted. All persons of Japanese descent were required to register. Now the actual migration got underway. They were forced to leave their businesses and their homes, many of which were pilfered or taken over, for which they were not compensated. There was no age limit, no exceptions. This period from 1942 to 1946 was known as Japanese internment. Um, now, I think most scholars of Japanese American history and Asian American history are trying to use the terms like incarceration. Which is fitting. They couldn't leave. They had no rights. And yet the girls kept their social clubs going in the camps as if they weren't incarcerated. Another group formed in uh, Manzanar. They were all, you know, very young, maybe like 12 or 13. And this group called themselves the Jugs. They, to them, the Jugs meant just us girls. They held dances in barracks and in a heartbreaking act of patriotism for a country that rejected the very idea that they could be patriotic. The social clubs launched letter-writing campaigns. They wrote encouraging letters to American soldiers abroad. These young girls worked to keep morale up any way that they could. I think it would have been extremely grim for the youth without these club activities. 
Club girls emerged with a sense of pride and community despite living in a country that denied them dignity and civil liberties. And they were bonded to each other. Many of these groups only died when their last members were buried. The jugs still meet as often as age and geography allows. And they have been getting together every year to play poker. And they also, at least once a year, they go to Las Vegas together. In Washington, D.C., social clubs had access to the seat of power. She made sure she kept in touch with the leaders of this country, so she would meet with the president. That's Dr. Arthelda Bush-Williams, a lifelong club woman and currently the historian of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, whose membership roles read like a who's who of women's history. Abolitionists, suffragists, activists, educators, humanitarians. Ida B. Wells, of course, and Harriet Tubman, one of the oldest members at the time that we were organized. We also have um, Mary McLeod Bethune. We have Mary Church Terrell. Some of the women Dr. Williams named may be familiar to you. We covered Ida B. Wells in our third episode. But I'm guessing Dr. Rosa Gragg is not. She was the 16th president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, Incorporated. And at the time, our organization had as many as 100,000 women. I didn't know who Dr. Gregg was until I was at the JFK Presidential Library and Museum in Boston. And I noticed this woman in a famous photo. But I never realized it featured more than a few men because, as is true with so much of women's history, Dr. Gregg is almost always cut out of the picture. And I almost always see it used as a close crop on MLK, RFK, LBJ. Literally right behind his Martin Luther King's shoulder is Dr. Gregg. That's Stacey Chandler, an archivist at the JFK Library. She's standing right there in this amazing hat, and she is just looking direct at the camera, participating in these really significant moments. Dr. Gregg was an advisor to three presidents. She's the civil rights heavy hitter you've never heard of. There's not a single biography on her. There should be many highlighting moves like this one. In August of 1962, Dr. Gregg and other members of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs arrived at the White House with a gift for JFK, a portrait of Abraham Lincoln that had been hanging in Frederick Douglass's house, which her organization had helped support since 1916. What I am really moved by is the fact that our women are so dignified and uh, they appear that way. They all have on their white gloves, their hats, and they know that this is a significant event and they're extremely proud to be a part of it. Dr. Williams is describing a gorgeous photo of Dr. Gregg and her fellow club women in the Oval Office presenting JFK with the Lincoln portrait. And you'll see that uh, Kennedy is standing there and Rosa Gregg is really smiling at him with a lot of enthusiasm and pride. Dr. Gregg knew exactly what she was doing. The timing of the gift was not accidental. A bill was moving through Congress to declare the Frederick Douglass House a national historic site. Once it's introduced, she starts lobbying for it like crazy. So she goes to Congress, she tells them, 
you could do no greater service to humanity or pay greater tribute to our race than to accept this noble and generous gift, which I think is great. If the bill passed the Frederick Douglass House, home to a man who was born into slavery and went on to become one of the most famous abolitionists in American history, would join the ranks of the Liberty Bell, Theodore Roosevelt's birthplace, the Tenement Museum. JFK signs the bill making the Frederick Douglass House a National Historic Site in September 1962, a month later. There's another photo of Dr. Gragg in the Oval Office, taken just a month after the last one. And in it, once again, she's sharing a knowing smile with JFK as he hands her the pen he used to sign the historic bill. And this is, for the record, just one example of what was happening at a national level. Black club women successfully bridged the class barrier and focused on poor women, working mothers, and tenant farm wives who were frequently excluded from social welfare institutions, particularly in the South. They were concerned with education, the key to advancement. We make sure that we continue to grow as individuals. And so we have a motto, lifting as we climb. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place. If you're a fan of sitcoms or stand-up or Saturday Night Live, you probably have Caroline Hirsch to thank for your favorite comedians. She's a legend in the comedy world. In 1983, she opened a New York comedy club, Caroline's. And ever since, she's been spotting rising talent in comics before they go on to become stars. But it didn't start out that way. People doubted my club when I opened. Why is she doing that? What does she know that we don't know? I mean, really, a woman running this club? And it was like, hey, guys, I, I, I got this under control. I, I think I know what sells. Caroline says succeeding as a leader means staying loyal to your own voice, trusting your instincts as you pave your own path. Stay with it. You know, find the people you want to work with and don't think it's just in your head when it doesn't work. I grew up thinking that I could do anything a man could do. I, I really I really assumed that. I, I really did. SAP is committed to making the world run better and helping women like Caroline break rules to help advance true gender equality. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. Social clubs weren't just for middle or upper class women. Working-class women were enjoying leisure time, something their parents had never experienced, and gave themselves names like the Lady Flashers, the Lady Millionaires, and the Lady Liberties. And my favorite, the women in the shoe department of the long-gone Siegel Cooper department store called themselves the Foot Mold Social Club. But it was always about more than leisure. And in the 1970s, women's clubs took on the big issues of the day. The decision to have a child should not be a matter to be decided by the male-dominated legislature. 
the Jane Club maintained a network of abortion providers, and the Boston Women's Health Collective published Our Bodies, Ourselves. But after that, they fell out of fashion with younger women. It just didn't have the same appeal once progress was palpable. Men were still in control, but women were better represented in government and in the workplace. They had control over their bodies, the right to choose, the right to get credit cards without their husband's signatures, to buy homes, to live independent lives. And then the 2016 presidential election came around. The scene here is so different than it was a few hours ago when people were happy and relaxed. I have been looking around the room at people who are stone-faced. Some of them have been crying. We have seen people leaving the venue, including some who have been sitting on the risers behind the podium where Hillary Clinton is supposed to speak. Uh, That was a tough night. I think, you know, everyone has, where were you? That's Audrey Gelman again, describing November 8th, 2016, a few weeks after the wing opened. Like so many others, Audrey assumed she'd be celebrating the election of the first woman president. That her new business would launch during an unprecedented era for women in America. But that didn't happen. I had this background in politics, but I didn't want to assume that other, you know, women, my peers, were going to be as interested as I was. Just like women's clubs of yore, members are diverse and so are their interests. Literature, finance, arts, business, travel, mental and physical health. They want a place to work, opportunities to mentor and be mentored, to take classes about things they'd been curious about or had never even considered. And I've met plenty of women who just want to make new friends, something that's often challenging as an adult. And Audrey had anticipated all of that. But as the reality of the Trump administration set in, there was an unprecedented appetite for politics. Women wanted to learn more, to get involved, to be seen and heard. And then, you know, what we saw was that sort of overnight there was this shift. And again, this sort of acceleration of consciousness that happened. Our members were like, Great, yes, I love that there's a shower, but like what I really want to do is get on a bus and march. And so they knitted hats, boarded buses, and headed to D.C. The Women's March was an incredible experience. I remember, you know, hundreds of our our members climbing onto buses, sort of falling asleep on each other's shoulders. And then I remember arriving at a rest stop in Delaware. And we sort of poured off the buses, and then we saw there were hundreds of other buses. And there were buses of, like, you know, the Mount Holyoke class of 1976. And all of a sudden, this rest stop in Delaware was literally filled with a sea of women. And the men's bathrooms had been taken over by women. And there were women everywhere. There were women with their kids. And, you know, I just looked around, and I just thought, like, you know, this is utopia. And this is where I began to see the vestiges of the progressive social clubs I'd studied being reinserted into the narrative. I saw modern women who were deeply concerned with and demanding change, not only in politics, but in their workplaces and their homes. And this was happening across the country. There's no better evidence than the 2018 midterm elections, when a record number of women ran for office. Every person out here this evening changed America tonight. Is Congress finally going to do anything meaningful about gun violence? We are writing the next chapter of Georgia's future. 
where no one is unseen, no one is unheard, and no one is uninspired. Wet reform is a women's issue. U.S. Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Stacey Abrams, a candidate for governor in Georgia, and Jessica Ramos, member-elect of the New York Senate. They all spoke at the wing, and on those days, the spaces were packed. Ramos is a first-generation, first-time candidate. I interviewed her in Jackson Heights, Queens, just a few blocks away from the apartment where she grew up, about what it was like to be one of the many first-time candidates during what's been called the pink wave. And of course, the first question people asked her on the campaign trail was about being a mother, about having it all. Look, I hated getting asked time and again how it was that I was going to juggle being a legislator and being a mother. Men are rarely asked these kinds of questions. The assumption is that their wives take care of their children and their home, which isn't to say that Ramos is all alone. Like, for every parent, it's really about making sure that you have a strong network. I mean, to be honest, my mom is the one who bears the brunt of picking up my kids after school. If I have evening events, feeding them dinner. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to run for office. She doesn't just mean the personal demands. There's a reason we've seen so many rich white men in elected office. Everybody on your campaign gets paid for, for their job except for the candidate, um, which to me is, is really a barrier for more uh, working people to run for office. That was, that was something that, that was and still is very difficult because I don't get sworn in until January. That's not, I don't say all of that to discourage women to run for office, but really because I want to paint a realistic picture of, of what it's like, of, of the sacrifices that you end up making. So it's been it's been a really good experience and and now and now hopefully I get to pass good progressive legislation with all these wonderful women. That's what Ramos found in the women focused spaces she spoke at during the campaign. From the wing to an amplify her rally in Queens, where women gathered to challenge gender inequity in New York politics. Being surrounded by women is a very validating and powerful experience because it does give you that sense of freedom to be uh, who you are as a woman, no matter where you come from, what you look like, what you like to talk about, what you like to listen to, what books you like to read. And ultimately, it is just such a valuable asset, I think, to a candidate. In reality, it's a physical sense of sisterhood that we've been longing for a long time. Not unlike Fanny Fern, the Japanese social clubs, Dr. Gregg, and so many others. I think that women's focus spaces can provide an example for society. A society in which a woman breastfeeding in public still incites debate. Offices are set to temperatures that ensure only men in suits are comfortable. And women are gawked at and harassed. They're constantly reminded, this space wasn't built for you. But when they are, anything is possible. Whatever women want, whatever they need. Like women's history, from a woman historian. The first season of No Man's Land has been about expanding and writing traditional narratives. Unearthing Madam Queen Stephanie St. Clair, 
challenging stereotypes about Sylvia Plath, seeing a young Ida B. Wells find her voice, learning who Anna Mendieta was before she wasn't, understanding why lesbians were treated like perverse criminals, and why social clubs were founded and why, over 150 years later, they're just as necessary. There's so much to do, and we're just getting started. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Ko. Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesro composed the music and her band Glasser wrote the theme with additional music from the band Lullatone. Thank you to Professor Deborah Brennigan, author of Shame the Devil, a novel about Fanny Fern, Professor Valerie Matsumoto, author of City Girls, The Nisei Social World of Los Angeles, 1920-1950, Dr. Arthelda Bush-Williams of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, Stacy Chandler, an archivist at the JFK Library in Boston, Professor Molly McLean at UCSD, and Virginia Elmwood Ackers. We also had help from Cynthia Pimental, Leela Day, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Dina Kleiner, Melanie Altarescu, Laya Garcia, and Diva Pardue. If you're interested in a women's-focused workspace and place to hang out in New York, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, London, or Boston, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at the-wing.com. Hold up. 